This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Dr. Aza Raza, the Chan Soon Xiang Professor of Medicine and the director of the MDS Center at Columbia University, a recently published book, The First Cell and the Human Cost of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. Dr. Raza, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, David. Dr. Raza's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, as has been well documented, we have made limited progress in reducing cancer's prevalence and mortality. As Dr. Raza notes in her book, in 2018, 18 million new cancers were diagnosed worldwide, with about half as many dying of the diagnosis. Citing the American Cancer Society, she notes further, This number will grow to nearly 22 million diagnoses and 13 million deaths by 2013. Despite limited progress in treating and preventing cancer, Dr. Raz explains at length the predominant approach used to currently treat cancer slash poison burn is, to be polite, primitive, and the predominant method or platform to research new treatments or cures, the use of animal models, is, as Dr. Raz states, quote-unquote, an unmitigated disaster. Despite these failures, Dr. Raza explains cancer treatment is almost guaranteed to bankrupt or at least significantly harm financially all but the super wealthy. With me to discuss her work, the first cell is again Dr. Aza Raza. So with that as background introduction, Dr. Raza, allow me to begin by asking you, what causes cancer or or its etiology? You segue early in the book to discuss cause. The simple answer is, we don't know. Is that correct? Yes, that's very correct. We can very rarely pinpoint what causes uh, cancer most of the time. Of course, there are exceptions. For example, with uh, cervical cancer of a particular type, we know it's caused by a virus. um, Or smoking has been associated with cancer exposure to benzene is associated with certain types of bone marrow cancers. But by far, for the majority of cancers, we don't uh, have very specific cause. And by the way, some cancers are uh, occur in people who have a genetic predisposition towards it uh, because they are born with uh, mutations in genes like P53 or BRCA1 or 2. But again, those form a uh, constitute a minority. Okay, thank you. You also do note in your uh, volume that cancer cells can live forever. Is that correct? That's correct, because normal cells are under the control of something called the Hayflick limit, which the great scientist Leonard Hayflick defined, that any uh, cell can undergo uh, multiple divisions, but there comes a time after about uh, 40 plus divisions, 43 to 46 divisions, when the cell has either a choice of completely dying, committing suicide and being removed or dialing down all its activities um, and uh, entering a state of hibernation uh, called senescence 
in which it continues minimal metabolic function but is not functional anymore. Cancer cells overcome this hayflick limit somehow and become immortalized so that they continue um, a uh, continuous state of proliferation. Okay, thank you. Let's go to the primary thesis or argument you make in the book, and that is, again, uh, the book argues for the need to change the current paradigm used to research cancer, and I'm sure that you chose the word paradigm uh, intentionally. I'm sure you're well aware that's the word um, made infamous by Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. But that aside, uh, that's primarily your argument, and in fact, you're very pointed about this. I'll read uh, from um, uh, the volume you note, quote-unquote, in reality, such models for drug development represent an irresponsible and serious waste of shrinking research resources. You say further, scientists need to stop making more and more artificial mouse models and tissue culture cell lines for cancer development. And in fact, at one point you say, we keep trying to improve the typewriter. The cancer problem requires a radically different approach. So first, let's start with the current approach, these um, uh, models uh, to identify uh, treatments or cures. These are animal models. Can you explain why these are substantially uh, flawed or faulty? Excellent question, David, because uh, the the question I ask myself is why are 95% of experimental agents brought to the bedside of cancer patients failing to reach FDA approval? 95% mm -hmm. clinical trials fail. It's the highest rate in any illness is associated with cancer. So how did these drugs get to the bedside in the first place? Drugs get to the bedside because they have been identified as being effective in eliminating the disease in some preclinical model. And what are these preclinical platforms? Some of these are in vitro test testing systems where cells are grown in perpetuity, such as uh, the famous or infamous HALA cells, which have been growing for decades. Or, uh, and drugs are tested against those or these um, um, so-called animal models are produced. Now, I'm constantly being misunderstood and misquoted about my thoughts on animal models. So I want to clarify it beyond any shadow of doubt, David. I have no problems with animal models. These are excellent tools for biologic research. However, my only problem is treating an animal with a disease with a certain drug and extrapolating the effects of that treatment to humans. Because what works in animals doesn't necessarily work in humans. In fact, Norbert Wiener said in 1940 that the best model for a cat is another cat, preferably the same one. So in other words, we are using uh, platforms to identify what we think are effective drugs uh, to treat cancer in either in vitro systems or in animal models, then we bring them, them to the bedside and all the wonderful results that we were seeing 
are not reproduced in humans. Now, this has been going on for years and years when people realize that these models are not faithfully replicating and recapitulating the human disease. Instead of giving up the models just for drug development, not biologic research, for cancer drug development, instead of giving up the models, we keep trying to make more and more artificial models. We try to tinker with the mice or with whatever animals we are using and try to make it more like humans. So the one sentence I will draw your attention to the book is that here is the problem. Scientists are studying a disease they never see. In, in animals who don't get them. So to me, that is so irrational. You take an animal and you destroy its immune system completely, then you transplant a human tumor into it, and when it grows, you treat it with something, and then if that treatment makes the tumor cells disappear, what? why should we have any level of confidence that the same will happen in humans after so many years of trying and with a failure rate of 95%? Yes, thank you. I'll, I'll note you do at, at an, another uh, place in the book, you say the presence of innumerable biologically distinct daughter cells with additional mutations uh, is the reason why even the best targeted therapies are of transient benefit. I kept waiting to see in your book you're noting the uh, phrase here I thought very apt is this seems to be the definition of insanity, uh, where we expect, uh, we do the same thing but expect a different outcome. So um, yes. so my next question uh, is, 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 of course, the default question. If we're not making progress, uh, as you say, uh, we have a 95% the failure rate for drugs brought into clinical trials using such preclinical drug testing platforms. Uh, is 95%, as you noted. Instead, as you noted, and this is the title of the book, The First Cell, instead, uh, we need to chase the first cell, not the last. You say, stop chasing after the last cancer cell and focus on eliminating the first. Better still, prevent the appearance of the first cancer cell by finding its earliest footprints. So the question is, how do we do this? And you do get into this a great deal or more substantially towards the end, but how do we flip or change the paradigm or model such that we're chasing uh, the first cell? I think it's not as difficult as, may, as it may sound, actually, because uh, uh, one of the major issues I have is the following. It's not that we don't have a solution for cancer. One of my biggest issues is we are not even ready to see the problem properly and in all its entirety. The problem is that cancer is far too complicated, at least advanced cancer. I have to clarify another thing here, that 68% of all cancers diagnosed today are cured. But cured with what? Chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, the same things we were using 50 years ago. So my first question is why? Why are we still using the same things? What happens with billions and billions of dollars poured into research to develop less toxic, more targeted therapies, we have, we have ended up from the vast majority of common cancers, we are still employing the same old strategies. 
And then for the 32% patients we are not curing who have advanced disease, the problem is that their outlook and outcome of, uh, for survival is the same as it was 50 years ago. That's unconscionable. In addition, we have developed ineffective drugs to give these patients that financially ruin them, physically damage their bodies, and only help a fraction of a patient's for a few months' advantage in survival. So given this horrendous current uh, cancer scenario, it is unsupportable. It is untenable. The, uh, not only individuals are becoming financially ruined, the country is becoming bankrupt. The whole healthcare system will collapse if we continue like this. The only strategy that has really worked in cancer is diagnosing it. That's how we have made all the uh, decrease in mortality from cancer, 1% every year for the last 20 years means 20 to 30% decrease in mortality. It's not because of any great new drug program we have developed. It's because of anti-smoking campaign and early detection leading to cure of more cancers. So why not use the same strategy, strategy except stop using the ancient paleolithic type screening measures such as putting a and uh, colonoscopy uh, tube into somebody's gut and looking into it. I mean, that is primitive compared to the technology that is available that can be used today to scan and to image and to detect biomarkers, to use genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, all these fancy new technology that has been developed to do liquid biopsies, to look for footprints of cancers. That's how we should be... Uh, looking at the human body as if it is a machine and continuously monitoring it for the appearance of very early signs of cancer instead of looking once a year by ancient techniques like mammography and colonoscopy. I am saying that if we set this new target, this new goal, and we financially incentivize this goal, that there will be a lot of benefits by going after this then all the businesses that are right now investing in an enterprise with a 95% failure rate may want to reverse their tactics and start going to instead from instead of chasing down the last cell try to go for the first cell and you know some people ask me David doctor aren't you concerned that the pharmaceutical industry will be mad at you of course not because right now Pharmaceutical industry is only targeting a million or two million cancer patients. But if we develop these technology to monitor healthy individuals for the signs of cancer, then imagine the entire country becomes their client suddenly. Interesting. Yes, as that was that's my next uh, comment or question, and that is uh, the cancer research industry. You are critical. You state in the 1990s. Um, or a milestone was reached rather in the 1990s, quote-unquote, when the pharma industry suddenly woke up at, with the realization that developing cancer treatments offers an untapped market of infinite monetary gains. But you're saying if they took another approach, their business could actually grow because, again, their focus uh, is not 2 million, but it's a much larger uh, population if they start thinking about uh, treating cancer as primary prevention. Is that correct? 
That's absolutely correct, but I want to clear, clarify that I don't hold just the industry responsible here. Because look, the stated goal of the pharmaceutical industry is to benefit and to make a profit. Mm -hmm. They don't hide this under uh, smoke and mirrors. They state it obviously. That is their goal to make money. The problem I have seen in my lifetime, David, is when I came to this country 40 years ago, doctors were running hospitals. Now, Businessmen are running hospitals. You can go out and buy a hundred band-aids for three ninety-nine, but if you get a band-aid put upon you in a hospital, they can charge you seventy-five dollars for one band-aid. Yes. So why aren't we criticizing hospital administration? Why aren't we criticizing all the, um, uh, for example, the devices, the imaging, scanning technique. Everybody is out to make money. It's not just pharmaceutical industry. I think it's unfair to say that. However, the one thing that a capitalist society um, gives us as a huge benefit is competition leads to bringing things to economies of scale very quickly. So, for example, the human genome took about 15 years to be sequenced and the first sequencing cost over $2 billion. Today, we can sequence the entire genome in a few weeks for the cost of a few thousand dollars. Coming down from 15 years to a few weeks and from over $2 billion to a few thousand dollars, like two, $3,000. Imagine, this happened within 20 years of human genome sequencing. So why? Because competition sets in and everybody is doing this now. So I think I'm very hopeful, I'm very optimistic, even though the book may sound like it's a doom and gloom book, David, it's a very optimistic, forward-looking book because there is no other choice for us but to take off our blinders, to get off from our high horses, to stop this arrogant, uh, overconfident approach that we are going to have this reductionist conceit and we are going to march in and um, unravel every abnormal intracellular signaling pathway in a cancer cell and reverse it back to normal. No, we can't do that because it's a moving target. Every time a cancer cell divides into two, it picks up new mutations and becomes two new potential cancers. So we have to admit it's far too complicated when the disease is advanced, it's uncontrollable, Trying to control it with immune therapies and, and the latest approaches leads to such severe toxicity that whole industries are sprouting just to control the toxic side effects of those um, strategies. That is, to me, completely, um, I don't understand it. It's impractical and what is it doing to the poor patients? So one of the major reasons for me to write this book, The First Cell, is in the subtitle, The Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. I want to bring the patient back front and center into every dialogue, every conversation about cancer. Because right now we have forgotten how to treat the illness. We are so obsessed with curing the disease. We are so obsessed with finding a cure, we have forgotten to heal the patient. We are so obsessed with curing and killing every last cell that we end up killing half the people. But we are just continuously following these kinds of inhuman strategies. I'm saying that it's not only fiscally unsupportable, it's physically unfair. The primary rule in medicine is first do no harm. Look at the number of people we harm 
for the benefit of a few individuals who can live for a few months longer. It's just unfair, it's wrong, it's uh, not uh, being fair to the patients or to the society. So the only compassionate, universally applicable, humane solution for cancer is to diagnose it early and prevent it from becoming the end-stage monstrosity which is out of control. Okay, thank you. Um, relative to uh, cancer changing per cell division, you do note that one centimeter of a tumor contains roughly three a billion cells. I'll just make the quick note that relative to how uh, the money flows from the federal government, you make note that less than 6% of the National Cancer Institute's budget is allocated to the earlier detection of cancer cells. But relative to, I do want to go to uh, paying heed to the patient and the monstrosity aspect of the cancer diagnosis in the book, you provide a detailed accounts of your relationship with nine patients uh, whom do not survive their diagnosis, including, tragically or sadly, your husband, Harvey. Uh, you do so because you state, we have become a healthcare system highly skilled in pursuing care, but not healing or dealing with acute emergencies, yet alarmingly lacking in simple acts of empathetic communication. So, and, and, and you phrase this, your approach, which is really to develop a relationship with the patient as opposed to your criticism of so-called, I appreciate this, doorknob uh, doctors. So could you <laughs> explain your, um, your approach relative to the relationships uh, you uh, develop in supporting your cancer patients? First, I want to say, David, I'm very impressed how carefully you've read the book. <laughs> um, Thank you. Second, I would like to make another confession that uh, in all my years in America as an oncologist, I have yet to meet a single colleague, a single oncologist who did not care about their patients. I just haven't met them. I am so impressed by the commitment, the time they give, the kind of uh, attention to detail and how empathetic they are. The problem is not with individuals, and the problem is also uh, a not. We may have different styles of expressing our empathy. I may tend to be getting very close to my patients. Uh, however, every oncologist I know, I have ever interacted with, and I interact with all of the. I mean, hundreds of oncologists uh, all the time because that's how we work. I have a very super specialized field, so a lot of patients are referred to me by my oncology colleagues regularly and I can't tell you how wonderful they are. It's not that individuals are doing something wrong or I have some great style that is different than others. It's the system has evolved in such a way that even the decisions me or one of my colleagues makes about a patient are not entirely our decisions. They are made by some third party called key opinion leaders who have defined national guidelines that if a patient presents with advanced pancreatic cancer, then this is first line of treatment, second line of treatment, third line of treatment. Now, because these are national guidelines, if I don't follow them exactly, I'm opening myself to legal challenges and a patient can sue me tomorrow or the patient dies, the family can sue me. You didn't give second line treatment. Well, I didn't think it, I would thought it would hurt them more. Well, no, but the national guideline was that. So in other words, I don't want to really talk about uh, myself as some great 
living example of a wonderful empathetic doctor and others are not it's not true all oncologists want to do the best for their patients the one thing you mentioned about the patients i've written about there are seven chapters in the book each devoted to a patient in the beginning david i had only written about other patients it's been 18 years since my husband died and it was such a painful experience for me i describe it by saying i had already been treating 20 uh, uh, cancer patients for two decades yet until i shared a bed with a cancer patient mm-hmm. i had no idea how painful a disease it is and that's why i couldn't bring myself to speak about it or write about it for 18 years and now when i was compelled to write this book and i was writing in such fine granularity about every other patient's life i felt that it would be dishonest if i didn't do the same with harvey and me and this is what made me come out and express uh, in all its uh, painful detail what uh, we went through and open my heart out and leave myself vulnerable to everybody just the way i am telling other patient stories and i say it over and over in the book my experience with oncologists during harvey's illness was unbelievable david i would call a stranger and they didn't know that harvey was head of the cancer center anything like that they would give me their cell phones their home numbers they would say call any time dr raza so i must say that it's the system i am really reacting against not individuals not a style okay thank you um you you do mention and 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 to your credit these accounts uh, are detailed about the decline of these patients due to their diagnosis and it's it's candidly it's it's tough sledding uh to read um i my question though is you do mention a hospice and palliative care um you do not however state uh, a position on palliative sedation but you do are you're candid enough to say and and these are some of the cases you describe uh one patient is um uh, lady n another is kitty and another is andrew and for these for example you state andrew died a tormented life uh kitty died quote unquote death by a thousand cuts and then you question whether per lady n's request to intubate her and attach her to a ventilator was the worst possible thing to do to her and against my better judgment so i'm curious to know having had this experience in several decades thereof what's your sense of when all is lost um use of palliative uh, sedation i'm completely against that uh, my my job is to save lives not to uh, accelerate death however it is not to prolong death is what i'm reacting against uh, with lady n i question myself did i not tell somehow convey to her that uh, uh, how terrible the end would be i question that maybe it was my feeling but on the other hand lady n's personality was such that over the years we talked constantly about what the end could be 
and some people just don't accept that mortality is coming their way. She was uh, just refused to even listen to me. She would walk out. She would have a temper tantrum. She would refuse to listen. She would demand that I should freeze her body and clone her when the techniques right. are available. So I mean, it's very. It's these are very philosophical questions that require. Um, debates in the society at ethical and very fundamental levels. But the point is that we as a society need to be examining ourselves and not making patients responsible who don't have enough knowledge, but who are the ones going through the illness. It shouldn't be all left up to them to decide because they don't know somehow how terrible this intubation would be. She had no idea what it would do to her. She just wanted to live somehow and not die, or rather not die, not even live, but just not die, anything to postpone that. We knew it, but doctors cannot make that judgment. Mm -hmm. We have to offer that choice, and the questions I'm asking are that prolonging death is not the same as accelerating demise. And I think that we have to ask ourselves where to where individual responsibility ends and society's responsibility begins, and vice versa. Okay, thank you. So, let me just conclude with this question. You did answer this in part relative uh, to my second question, and that being, uh, or excuse my third, uh, how do we get at um, chasing the first cell? Uh, so. Towards the end of your volume, you talk about imaging while showering, smart bras, uh, liquid biopsies you mentioned, uh, scanning tech, high-tech scanning techniques, rapid machine learning, intelligent software, micro, microfluidics, etc. So where, where is your research currently focused in chasing the first cell? Thank you for asking, David. I will also end by saying that what we need is no individual can solve this pro solve this problem sure. by themselves. It's too complicated. We need a consilience across disciplines. We have to work together on colleges, basic scientists, molecular biologists, biochemists, imaging, scanning, uh, IT, AI, everybody, nanotechnologists. We have to put our minds together with the same goal in mind. The idea is in this day and age of such technologic advances where we are uh, congratulating ourselves with cutting and pasting DNA, there is no need to keep using Stone Age technology to look for the first cell. We need to develop the techniques. And what can I do? I have been saving actual human tissues on my patients since 1984, blood, bone marrow, buccal smears, their normal germline DNA control cells. And now... We have a tissue repository of over 60,000 samples from thousands of patients who were diagnosed with pre-leukemia and progressed to die of either their pre-leukemia or progressed to acute myeloid leukemia. They were sequentially and longitudinally studied at multiple time points during the natural progression through the course of their disease. We have all the samples. Many technologies are already available, such as I mentioned, genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics. We can start studying these samples in a sequential manner. We uh, unraveled the uh, different biomarkers that appeared in the serum or blood of these patients during the progression of the disease. We traced them back to the pre-leukemic stage. Then we asked the question, 
why did these people even get pre-leukemia that then became leukemia? Who are the individuals at high risk of getting leukemia? Are there some genetic mutations we are missing? Can we uncover them by studying these thousands of tissue repository samples? The problem, of course, is the resources. To study 200 patients carefully by all these panomics techniques I described costs $4 million. To study the tissue repository properly will cost $100 million. Where does it come from? Well, the people at high risk of getting cancer should be the ones most interested in the first cell, in finding the first cell. Who are those people? People who have already had one cancer. Do you know that one in five new cancers appear in someone who is a cancer survivor? There are 20, 16 to 20 million cancer survivors in America today, which is a great thing, but they are at the highest risk of a second cancer. We should, if they, just one million of them even give $10 a month for a year, that's $120 million. That can help study the whole tissue repository. So I'm saying there are some, these things are not uh, insurmountable, in other words. We just need to open our eyes, take off the blinders, look at where we are going and set a new goal and then make the public aware, increase the education and, and somehow take away this misconception from the public that everything is hunky-dory and everything is looking great and much progress has been made in cancer treatment. No. Once the public realizes the truth, why wouldn't they support early detection? Correct, absolutely. So with that, uh, Dr. Raza, we're at, our, we're at our time. So I appreciate genuinely this overview of the volume. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to discuss it with you. I hope it sells well and that uh, it has, a, has an impact on our uh, changing our policy towards uh, research and treatment. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me, David. And my job is, by the way, not to sell the book, but to make it obsolete as fast as possible because the real job I have to do is find the first cell. And I hope I'll have everyone's support to do that. Good point. Good point. Thank you again. <laughs> You're a wonderful host. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.